Awesome. Thanks, guys. That is a really great prayer. I feel like I should tape that up somewhere. Just pray that all the time. Just super good. Well, thanks for doing that, guys. Second time now. Really, really great. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Thanks for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. We are currently in the book of Acts, sermon series-wise, so please turn there if you'd like. In a Bible you brought or in front of you on our phone app, we'll be in Acts, the end of chapter 4 today, uh, starting in verse 32, and then going through chapter 5, verse 11. So kind of give you the big overall span there where we're headed. Um, Acts, if you've not been here, or just kind of by way of reminder, is really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So some of your Bibles might say Acts of the Apostles. Traditionally, that's what it's called. It's not wrong to say that. Uh, the Apostles are the, the disciples of Jesus. Uh, but it's really the acts of the Holy Spirit of God moving through the church, so kind of birthing the church, moving through the church to kind of just instigate and, and allow for this spreading of the gospel to more and more peoples all around the Roman Empire and the ancient world of that day. And so we're still going to get there eventually, historically and theologically. But right now, the church has just been born. We're in chapter 5 and a couple chapters ago. The church has just been born through Peter's initial kind of Christian sermon. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 converts and then thousands more later on, which we've, again, read about so far in the story. But the church is born, and the gospel continues to grow and multiply. That's a key phrase to look for in this series. We have, I don't think, seen it yet verbatim, but we will. That, that phrase Luke uses often, grow and multiply. The word of God or the gospel will grow and multiply among the people uh, in kind of a um, uh, contrasting way to like the political powers and the antagonistic figures towards the church and so it's kind of cool linguistically and narratively what he does there later, but that's another sermon. But that's what's happening, though. The church has been born. Jesus has ascended. He's ruling over all things. And the gospel is being shared and evangelized with people. And miracles are happening. And the church is being built. And, and all kinds of great things are happening. But we've seen already, not without conflict. And so uh, many are opposed already. We've been seen to this new way or Christianity and uh, God is uh, helping the church in this area. But, but God basically up to this point has been helping his people, the first Christians, in general to be well-received, respected, and listened to by the Jews so far. Uh, so we, we've seen a trial take place. We've seen arrests take place. But basically that, that's what's been transpiring. But today, as Peter was saying before that last song, things turn a bit dark. But the threat does not come from outside, but inside. That's a big change. In one sense, it's the same kind of thing because things were always threatening the church. But this is the first time we're seeing the threat come from within the ranks of Christians, uh, or at least kind of from within gatherings and so forth, churches like this. And so we'll, uh, I'll save a few more things on that till after we read the passage. But that's basically kind of what to look for as we read. It's a great passage today. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, a lot of you guys have read this before. If you had, you kind of know what's coming. I'd encourage you to... Um, Really look for the good. Look for conviction. Look for warning. Look for encouragement. Look for consolation. And look for the gospel in this passage. And I'll touch on a lot of those things today. Uh, there's always more to say, but I encourage you to look for that. And kind of let this wash over you. I, myself included, God's words kind of wash over us here. And this is a very, very um, church-centered passage. And they, they all have been, but it's a very church-centered passage in the sense that it speaks to direct communities of faith in terms of how to think about sin, how to think about um, issues of generosity, and how to think about judgment, and how to, how to learn from people's downfalls as well. And so all kinds of things. Uh, but it is definitely a, a darker turn compared to where we've, we've been. I'll, I'll say more in a minute. But. So Acts 4.32. Let's start uh, in, in that verse, the end of chapter 4. All right. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. 
And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds that brought only a part, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. All right, so I said first service too, but isn't this kind of a cozy passage to warm up to on a cold Minnesota morning? All right, but here we go. A couple initial thoughts here. Um, This is, like I was saying before, a a sobering, different kind of passage that we've been exposed to so far. It's really good, though. Um, It's, you know, I don't know if you guys have read this before or not. I know a lot of you probably have, but some of you maybe, um, this is the first time. Uh, This is, is, to me, always stuck out as a little out of place, uh, to put it mildly, but for a number of reasons, Uh, but especially in light of where we've come from in Acts so far. Just a really brief recap. In Acts 1, Jesus ascends in victory over all things. In Acts 2, it paints this almost utopic picture of church life and community together. In Acts 3 and 4, miraculous healings take place. The gospel is preached. Thousands convert and are baptized. And it was so climactic and victorious across the board. Even in part of today's passage, as you just just saw at the end of chapter 4, the generosity of the church towards each other and love towards each other is off the charts. And then we have chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, this married couple, lie about how much their property was worth and they fall dead where they stand at the apostles' feet before church leadership. Makes perfect sense, right? Not really. But it's just weird. It's, it's weird and it's dark and it's sobering um, and yet contrasts so clearly with the end of chapter 4 too, which is part of Luke's point. We'll, uh, we'll come to that. But I do want to say right off the bat with number two in mind here, what does it not mean? Uh, this is, as we start to talk more about what this means for us, the point here isn't to all of you Christians, go and sell your home, lay the money at Spencer's feet, or die. You know, that's not the point, uh, to be, to be um, clear. It's probably what goes without saying, but I think it just needs to be said, because this isn't something that 
we see it happen a lot, right? I mean, I don't think probably any of us have seen this happen in a church. It's not a common occurrence at Hiawatha on Sunday mornings. It doesn't usually happen. No, it's never happened here. Um, but it probably hasn't happened much at all um, throughout the rest of the church age or church history outside of this moment. And so that helps us with understanding that there's probably something going on here that's more story-based. Remember, the Bible and Acts is kind of a, a book within the Bible is a story. It is, and Luke as the author, is, is not prescribing something here so much as describing something happening. There's no imperatives, there's no commands, there's no go and therefore do this or don't do this. And so we have to ask that tougher question then, well, what does this mean? Context helps, the gospel helps, understanding what kind of Luke's um, paradigm for writing this book has been and looking back into the gospel of Luke, we'll get to that a little bit later, helps, but it's still kind of difficult sometimes. But that, I think, is the bigger question. What's going on here theologically? And digging deeper, this last question, where is the gospel, where is Jesus' death and resurrection hidden within the the fabric and in the white space between the lines of sort uh, in this passage? And so I I said this back in our Judges series years, uh, years, years, months ago, a year ago. But when things get kind of weird, like in passages like this, when things get kind of dark, Jesus is usually there. We just have to do the hard work of asking, well, where is that? And and how is he kind of suggested or subtly looked ahead to and forecasted? So we'll do that throughout, but a little bit later on. So what I want to do today is talk about what are these theological points. And I have three big ones. They're all written down in the sermon inserts. If you're a note taker, feel free to look ahead if you want, but this will all be on screen. Three big theological things going on here that I think escalate in order of importance. So we'll start small and less important, even though it's important, less important, and we'll build towards what is um, the, the most important thing at, at the end, by the, by the third point. All right? So the first thing is, uh, this is the first instance we have of wolves, false converts, or posers or pretenders in the church. So narratively, uh, maybe you noticed that uh, the thematic kind of contrasting break between the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5, I was already talking about this, but maybe, maybe you kind of felt that in terms of the way that it read. It's meant to do that. It's meant to convey that there is this way that true believers are acting with their stuff, with, and, and there's a true way, there's a, a better way, a more holy and, and uh, sanctified way that Christians are acting, the true believers are acting with their stuff. And then there's how Ananias and Sapphira are acting, these others are acting, and they're meant to, to contrast. And this is happening even amidst the church community itself. And so we don't know exactly where they, Ananias and Sapphira, this married couple, were at spiritually. And the point here is not to say that true Christians never sin. Obviously not. In fact, the opposite. We'll come back to saying the opposite here in just a little bit. But the severity by which they are judged and called out, really, indicates that this is is the first time, probably, but um, I think we can be pretty certain of this, the first instance, certainly narratively at least, the first instance of seeing wolves, Satan-filled spies, uh, infiltrate the church, or those living double lives, those kind of pretending to be Christians but who actually aren't, which we read a ton about elsewhere in the New Testament letters. And so if you guys are brand new to the Bible or you're just starting to crack into some of these letters in, in the New Testament, you've probably seen that Paul has a lot of enemies, not just outside the church, but many within. Christians who hated him, who wanted to be more famous than him, who wanted his platform, 
who thought he was a terrible orator and who ripped on him for it. He had a lot of enemies from within the church. And so that's how I want you to see here that this is already happening. We have uh, problems and threats outside, but there's also problems inside from within the ranks of, in this case, so-called Christians. People are kind of posing or actually aren't Christians, but that could actually happen, though, from true believers, too, because conflict happens and so forth. But I think in this case, not actually Christians. But also the threat from within the heart. And I'll come up later as well, too. But, but the main threat is actually uh, outside. All right, so this happens a lot throughout the New Testament letters. You'll see this. We'll reference some throughout the series. Uh, but churches, I think, have experienced this in season and out ever since. And this has happened in our church. This has happened in Pride Church you guys have been a part of. Maybe some of you have seen this a lot, even. Or this has been your own story. Like, this is part of your journey where God saved you out of this place of, you know, pretending or just being in a church to, you know, find a spouse, but kind of pretending, you know, to be a Christian, but you actually weren't or something. Or, or even having malicious intent. This is what we mean by wolves, is that there are some people who are not just pretending, but people who are pretending to harm Christians and lure them away to non-Jesus-centered theologies that are really from the pit of hell. So we have that kind of thread and theme throughout the New Testament too. That's why I have a lot of names up here. It's not just wolves, but it could be false converts or pretenders um, as well, depending on why they're doing that or, or their motive. And so um, different levels of, of severity. All right, so this doesn't mean that they, in modern-day churches, will be spotted and judged so quickly as they are here, but the point is that they are there usually, uh, not every day necessarily or every season, but in general they, they are there and ultimately that they will be found out. And so it's a consolation for Christians, it's a warning for all of us to not be those people, but it's a consolation too that God is in control. Jesus has a parable in Matthew 13, which I will, um, I'll read the first few verses of this. He keeps going, but the first few verses are, are this, verse 24. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So his point is that he will allow the wheat, and he goes on to say this, the wheat and the weeds to grow together. He won't start weeding right away because that could hurt the weeds, or the wheat, I mean. But at the last day, the final day, the day of judgment, when Jesus returns, there will be a final separation. So the wheat will be... Uh, the weeds pulled up first and bound and burned. Then the weeds, the weeds, I keep saying the opposite thing. The weeds, which represent Christians here, and, and the, did I say it again? You guys know what I'm saying, right? All right. The wheat, which are Christians, and the weeds who are not, uh, there'll be a final separation. And so we're going to get a glimpse of that here in Acts 5. And Jesus speaks to this. Um, Acts 5 is, uh, is a glimpse. And, and to be clear, not talking about non-Christians here. This is a different category. Having non-believers among the church actually is a means of grace to those people where it can be, uh, we want that, we ha we've had this here for 12 years and we want this. It's actually a good thing. We want it to be true. We want those who are not yet Christians to gather with us, to learn about Christianity, to be exposed to what the true gospel is before they trust in it or as they're trusting in it. That's all really good. What this is talking about, though, is fake Christians, or those who are pretending in order to harm, or those who are living extreme double lives uh, and um, sort of lying and not being authentic or transparent before church leadership or something like that. It's talking about those types of people. And so 
With that said, it's a warning for Christians, or again, so-called Christians. It's a warning, though, that God sees the heart, and that this type of purifying, separating of the wheat and the weeds, and the, gl- and the glimpse we get here in Acts 5 will occur in the future when Jesus returns. That, that's the warning. And we get this a lot of other places. I'm not going to spend more time on this today. I think there are other more important things going on here, but this becomes the focus for a lot of the New Testament's exhortations. When this confronts us, Christians, it, the, the, the warning usually is, don't be the weeds. Or I think of things like 2 Corinthians 13, the end of that letter where Paul says to Christians, examine yourself and test yourself to see whether or not you're actually in the faith. To Christians, examine yourself. What do you actually believe about Jesus? Is there any kind of double life thing going on here? Do you actually believe this? Is there repentance? Is there just true, true belief? Uh, look deep and ask yourselves those probing questions. I think in Ananias and Sapphira's case, we don't know for sure the way Luke wrote this, but I'm guessing that they surprised, this whole thing surprised a lot of people. So a lot of people were saying, what? I thought they were in. I thought they were, you know, I thought they were one of us. I thought they believed the same things we did. I just had lunch with the guy yesterday. Things seemed fine. What's going on? And so that kind of tension there, which I'll come back to, I think, uh, feeds this whole idea, you know, of it can appear as though we're actually a part of the church when we're not. God knows. He knows the heart. He's being patient in hopes that those people will shift over still and repent and truly become Christians. But uh, in the meantime, there's these consoling passages that God knows. He's in control. And for a time, the wheat and the weeds grow up together. All right, so that's the first thing. The second piece here, so again, building an order of importance, is what is the true nature of Ananias and Sapphira's sin? All right, so I'll work through this relatively quickly, at least start that way, but ruling out something first to begin, and that is it couldn't have been that they didn't give 100% of the proceeds. So the issue here is not that they didn't give 100% of what they got when they sold their house or their property. And the reason we know this is this whole act of giving was elective. It was optional. It was not a law or a command, but it flowed from the church's belief in a God who was generous with them through Christ, who, speaking of Jesus, was a type of undeserved gift given to them, the church. At least in Barnabas's case, the son of encouragement, and the church, the unnamed church that was giving from a better heart or better spirit, it's implied, at least in their case, not in Ananias and Sapphira's case. We'll come back to that. But we know that this was an elective thing, and so the issue here is not the amount of what they gave. Peter gets at this himself when he said in the passage, I don't, I don't have this back on screen, but Peter says, remember that first interaction with Ananias when he said, this whole thing was yours, this property was yours. Was the house not yours before you sold it? And after you sold it, wasn't the money yours to be used how you wanted to? Why are you lying? Why are you hiding all this? You could have given 1%. You could have given 10. You could have given 100 or none. It's all up to you. Why did you fabricate this whole thing? Why the lie? That's the context here. And so the issue, again, is not that they didn't give 100% of their property. That's not the issue. So then the question is, well, what is the issue? It must have been a mix of two things. First, the obvious, which is lying, which Jesus says is, Uh, clearly a sin. He is the truth. He's the opposite of lying. Lying is the native tongue of the devil. Jesus says it hurts people, it puffs up the self, and it grieves God. And so lying is kind of this initial thing where it's obvious that's what they're doing, and that is a, 
a sinful thing to do. It's wrong to do. So that's the first thing. But it must be more than that, or I think it is more than that. We see that in the way that Luke writes this out. So it's not just lying. That's the symptom. It's what lies beneath the lie. And that's the second thing here, which is claiming to do more than they really did. That's the issue. So they claim to say, basically what they're bringing to the apostles' feet is, we sold our property and we're bringing 100% of it to you. They're claiming to be more generous than they actually are. And so what that then kind of points us to is this whole, it's not about greed as it is, but not just about greed, not just about truthfulness. It's about boasting. It's about making themselves look better, which, and I'm kind of taking us somewhere here with this, so hang with me, which is really a form of works-based righteousness or understanding of what it means to be saved, trying to save the self and climb the ladder and amplify our good deeds before God, and in this case, God's uh, stewards or God's leaders in the church, the, the apostles. And all of that is the antithesis, the opposite of the Christian faith, the opposite of the gospel, which highlights Jesus' work, not ours. This whole thing reminded me of Cain and Abel back in Genesis 4, which I will not go back to for time's sake, but I encourage you to uh, check it out if it's new or if it's not. Uh, But chapter 4, the first part, Cain and Abel are these two sons of Adam and Eve. They're brothers. And in this chapter, it says that Cain and Abel both bring a sacrifice to God. And then it says, God had regard for Abel's sacrifice, but he did not have regard for Cain's. And then it says this really important phrase, Cain was angry at Abel for it. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but Cain had anger towards Abel and eventually kills him. Um, But he had anger towards his brother for the regard that God showed his sacrifice versus his own. And so just a really quick lesson here on what's going on. Lots to say, but a quick lesson here. Condescending anger is a telltale sign of works-based righteousness. Condescending anger, so looking down on someone, having anger for someone that you feel is beneath you because they were regarding that you weren't, is a telltale sign that you believe the way to get to God or the whole point of being human at all, the whole point of life, is to work ourselves towards something by our own strength. We see it in Jonah's anger towards the Ninevites, exact same thing. He thinks he's better than the Ninevites. That's why he's angry. We see it in the Pharisees' anger uh, when their works aren't regarded by Jesus. They think they're better than the common folk. And so they're angry at Jesus and angry at these people they think they're above because they think they're someone or something when they're actually nothing. So in other words, when we think we're better than someone else, we think that highly of ourselves, we will get angry when that other person is accepted before us. We just will. Or think about it like in a workplace setting. Uh, if, you, uh, if someone beneath you in the sense that they came to your company after you and they've been there a year, you've been there 10 years or something, if they get a promotion before you or kind of rise above you or their work is regarded, if you think you're better than that person or deserve something more, you'll be angry at that. But if you don't think you're better, that will stifle and quell your anger a lot easier. So we'll come back to some of these lessons here, and I'll supply to the gospel in a minute. But it's the, same, it's the same thing for, like, just all of life. But in a spiritual way, if we think we're better than someone and they're regarded by God, if they're, um, you know, 
blessed or used in, in church or they're joined staff before you do or whatever your kind of like view of, and you shouldn't do this by the way, but this is just how we think. Whatever the pyramid is, you know, uh, of ascension in a church family, there is none. But if you think that way, whatever that is, um, if you think that you're better than someone, you will get angry at the person who's climbing faster than you. All right? Back to Acts 5, it's not the exact same story going on because Ananias and Sapphira don't get angry. And maybe they would have, they just died right away, you know. But, but the same thing comparatively, I think, is going on. This is a faith versus works type setup as you contrast the end of chapter 4 with all of chapter 5. It's a faith, gospel, grace, Barnabas side, and then there's a works type side here where, where um, Ananias and Sapphira give kind of out of that heart to make themselves look good. They're, they're basically, to use different words for it, Ananias and Sapphira are basically saying, because they're claiming to give 100%, they're basically saying before the apostles of the church, Look what I've done. Look at what I've done. Look at all this that I have brought. See how that sounds different than just giving from a different heart where people realize, oh, I'm nothing. I'm just giving because God gave to me and this isn't my stuff anyway. It's God's. But Ananias and Sapphira are giving from this workspace kind of self-bolstering. Look what I have done. And it, those of you who have read other, other parts of the Bible that sound this way, what happens to people that say that before God? It's not usually a good thing for those people. It doesn't end really well. Uh, Earth opens up and swallows people, and God basically rebukes people and uh, calls them Satan and all kinds of things. So uh, it's not never, like, there's no, there's no uh, exception of a person that comes before the God of the universe saying, look what I've done for you, where God accepts that. There will never be an instance of accepting that, ever. And that's the point. That's the point of the Bible, is there's a contrast between just trust in God doing everything for us and us doing even a percentage of what's required. There's a contrast between those two things that the Bible constantly holds out, and we're seeing that juxtaposed here between Barnabas and true Christians and Ananias and, and Sapphira. You can also see it here in chart form. And again, just the way that this passage is laid out, uh, they're contrasted. Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him, which, which is interesting because that's also an expression of the gospel, right? Meaning Barnabas gave land that belonged to him like God gave Jesus who belonged to him, his son. And Jesus is interest, interestingly referred to as a type of spiritual land in the Bible or inheritance that also links this, these two stories up, but that's kind of another sermon. But the point is, God gave Jesus up as a type of payment for the sake of others, right? This is the gospel that we just sung about. This is what we just sang about. This is what we eat. This is who we are. This is our identity, if you're a Christian. Our identity is wrapped up in God loved us so much that he lost so we might gain. He gave what belonged to him so we might share in the proceeds of that. This is why Jesus is talked to as though he's a type of money as though we've been lavished upon by the riches, Ephesians 1, of his grace. We were spiritually poor, but now we're spiritually wealthy. Even if we're monetarily poor, we're spiritually wealthy. And we have all that we'll ever need because God has looked kindly upon us and said, I'm going to save you from death. I'm going to save you from eternal separation from me. I'm going to save you from your own hard heart, your propensity to have bad theology, like all of us. Your propensity to bolster yourself, your own... Your own, your own worst enemy idea. 
God interrupts that and invades that, challenges that. And so this whole thing on the Barnabas side, um, this is the gospel. The proceeds of Jesus' death were distributed to us when we believe. So the way that Luke writes Acts 4 just sounds like, that's the whole point, it's the gospel. The idea there is that the church was freely, not obligatorily, but freely, some of them, selling things and holding their stuff loosely and giving away to the church in a way that complemented what was being preached about God. God did this for you on a greater level. So, and now he lives within you. So as we keep in step with that idea, we will hold our stuff loosely like God held his son loosely and be generous to other people. Not to be saved by it like Ananias and Sapphira were thinking, that that act would save them or some version of that, but just because they had an opportunity now to do that and they cared more about others and God than themselves. That's just what the gospel eventually does to us. It, it brings us to that glorious place of thinking less frequently about ourselves and just being a happier person because of it, which is really hard to do today and just because we're human, but that's what the gospel actually has the power to do. All right, so contrast all of that with the right side, which is Ananias and Sapphira. It says, and the way he writes this, I think, kind of contrasts with the idea of belonging because it says they just gave this vague idea of a piece of property, but they do it from a filled with Satan works-based mindset that made themselves look like they were doing more than they were. Which is interesting. The reason why I think we know this is what's going on, this is the cancer behind the symptom, the symptom's lying, the symptom's greed, or whatever. This is the true cancer. The reason why we know this is because Peter says, you're filled with Satan when you do it. And we know from the Bible that Satan's main MO is to get us to believe in ourselves. That's what the prince of demons, the main enemy of our souls, wants us to do. And we cooperate with that all the time. We, we just do. Christian or not, we just do that. We entertain that notion. We believe in ourselves. And the reason why he wants to do that is because he's kind of won, in a sense, if he does that. He's basically brought more people onto his side of rejecting God's authority and rejecting the goodness of God for the sake of making us into mini-gods and replacing them on the throne. And so if we start to believe that we're good at the core and we don't really need God anymore, that's basically what Genesis 3 is about, if you've read that before, is the devil saying, really? I mean, I don't think God's quite saying that. He, he's just saying he knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll become like him. You'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. The ultimate temptation is you can be like God. In other words, you can be your own God. You can replace him. You don't need him that much. He's not as good as you think he is. And I think a little, there's a little something in there that you can tap into and rise above all these challenges and kind of be your own. That's where sin comes from. That's the ultimate thing. Yes, lying's a sin, but that's worse. All that, what I just said there, is way worse because that's where lying comes from. So Ananias and Sapphira, filled with Satan, give out of this, this workspace mindset. And, and it's interesting, in Acts 5, so I think what he's doing, God is endorsing the left side. He's endorsing the former way while judging the latter way. He's endorsing the former way while bringing judgment against the latter way. And in a way, all of this, again, I know I've kind of been saying this already, but in a way, this shows all of us what will ultimately kill us, Christian or not. And aside from Jesus, obviously, we'll come back to him, praise God. But aside from him, this is what 
will ultimately kill us are actually better than that. This is what actually already has killed us. And that is not simply the act of lying, but the act of people-pleasing, and more than that, the act of making ourselves look good, and in that looking good, believing it, and in that believing it, denying Jesus. Because who needs Jesus when we're looking so good? I read this satire uh, last week. Woman unsure why she needs Jesus after a preacher spends 30 minutes telling her how amazing she is. Right? It's, it's that kind of idea. It's super funny. But it's also kind of an indictment on a lot of preaching today. But anyway, it's super funny. But this is the whole thing. The, the gospel contrasts with our works so that Jesus' work is highlighted. So that we're saved not just from our sins, but from our attempts at saving ourselves through our good works. And this is not just about conversion, you guys. If you're hearing that and you're saying, yeah, you know what, I have this friend who needs to hear that, who's almost a Christian, um, maybe that's true. But you need to hear it. I need to hear it as Christians. Because remember, all this Acts 5 stuff is happening in the church. This is a threat inside the church. Not from the outside. But from people who should have known better. People who probably responded to Peter, Peter's preaching. And they're in the church. It's like the, the penny didn't totally drop, though. It's like they kind of got it, but they didn't totally get it. This is a warning for Christians. Not just against lying, but about falling away from the gospel to a place of believing in ourselves and trusting in our good deeds to save us. And then lying about and hiding our sin. So what's the ultimate takeaway? Uh, here, verse 11. I'll start to answer that question by way of verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church. Which is really interesting uh, because the whole church didn't share in this judgment, right? They're watching it. I mean, if we ask the question, I put it up here. This is an important question to ask and answer. Why do you think this happened? Like if we say, okay, the whole church had fear over this. Why do you think that happened? On one level, it's kind of obvious. Well, people drop dead, you know, during uh, church. So that would freak anybody out. But on another level, I think there's more. And stick with it. Ask it again. Why do you think this happened? The whole church had fear. In other words, and if this helps, why weren't the rest of the Christians proud of how they didn't die? Why weren't they proud of how they gave from a better heart than Ananias and Sapphira? And the answer is, because they knew their hearts and their sin, and this is the key. The true Christians in this passage, the true believers, did not think they were better than Ananias and Sapphira. That's why they had fear. The true Christians, and this is a true Christian way to think, they looked at the downfall of someone else and said, I'm no better. I'm not a speck better and so fear was the response, not pride. Do you see? And so instead of reading this and th this whole passage and thinking, don't do this, don't be like Ananias and Sapphira, instead, change the way you think to this. Who hasn't done this? Who hasn't lied? Who hasn't been greedy? Who hasn't been stingy? 
How many times have I worked off of a works-based understanding of salvation? How many times have I tried to people, please? How many times have I been angry over people I thought I was better than? Why aren't we dropping dead right where we sit right now in this church building? Do you see? We've done the same things. Do you think the Christians, Christians in Acts 4 were perfect? Do you think they'd never lied? Do you think they were perfect with their generosity? Why, aren't we, why am I not dropping dead right now? Why are you not dropping dead in your seats and me up here? Why are we still breathing? Do you see the tension? You see where this takes us? And do you see how different it is to think that way? If it's just about morality, yeah, don't do this, great. But morality can't fix your yesterday. Because all of us did this stuff yesterday. Or whenever yesterday was. Or this morning when we woke up. Or in our dreams. And so the fact that we're still breathing, and in this day, the church had been great fear over this because they might, must have realized, I'm no better than that guy. In fact, Ananias used to disciple me last week. He was ahead of me a little bit, so what? What's going on? I'm no better. Where this starts to take us, and the reason why we have to go there, we have to land there, we have to let this be a mirror, and not just, oh yeah, I knew an Ananias once. He was a really bad person, or she was terrible. Why we have to flip that around. And like the true Christians of this passage, have fear, not pride. It's because this takes us, in that moment, this takes us to Jesus. This takes us, or at least begs the question, what resolves the tension? Some liars are falling dead. Some liars are totally fine. It must not be about lying or not lying. There must be another factor that determines whether or not we live. And there is Jesus. In Christ, this is the gospel, in Christ, we're not treated as we should be. And that's good news. In Christ, we're not treated as we should be. In fact, as we start to look closer linguistically at this passage and ask the question, where's the gospel? Remember that question from before? Where's the gospel in this passage? Luke makes an interesting connection here, and this is where you start to see Christ. We've already seen him, don't get me wrong. This is where you start to see him linguistically here. Luke, who wrote both of these passages, says in Luke 23, at Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus, quote, breathed his last, just like in Acts 5.5 where it says, Ananias, quote, breathed his last. They were both wrapped, they were both buried. It's the same exact phrase, both written by the same guy in a two-volume set about one theology. Which is then a subtle theological, maybe not subtle, maybe it shouts it, but a subtle theological reminder that Jesus became like Ananias, even though he wasn't. So when we ask, like, what's the deal with Jesus, or how exactly does he save? This is narratively saying that to us. Jesus became like Ananias in a way, even though he wasn't when he died for us. Or, to quote from 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, God became Jesus to be sin. Christ became sin on the cross for us, so that in him, when we believed, we might, there's this great exchange idea happening, we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, for our benefit, so the proceeds 
of this salvation might come to us and dispense to us. We're the beneficiaries. God made Jesus to be sin, even though he was, to become like Ananias and be judged, even though he clearly wasn't. And he never sinned. He was perfect. The darkest parts of the Bible, you guys, just a little bit of a teaching thing here for a second. I, I said this back in our Judges series a year ago as well because we looked at very dark narratives, similar to this, even worse than this, but similar to this. The darkest parts of the Bible are three things. One, descriptive of how evil we are. We've talked about that today. Two, descriptive of what Jesus saves us from. We've talked about that today. But also three, descriptive of what Jesus took on in order to save us. See that third notion, how important that is? So how bad we are, what Jesus saves us from, but kind of the how he saved is he, he became what he wasn't. He became what we were on the cross as a substitute, human sacrifice and substitute, obedient to God as Father who died in our place, who took, a, took the brunt, took a bullet. And so the linguistic connection between Ananias and Jesus, biblically, is just saying it's undergirding, underlining, subtly, quietly, but this whole notion that these Christians weren't breathing their last, Ananias did, and then Jesus did as well. Jesus breathed his last, just like this guy. He died. I'm still living. That's unfair. That's unjust. But it happened. Jesus died for us by taking on our sin in order to save us. And the Bible makes those kind of connections to show that he was judged on the cross. And, and not just a moral teacher who says stop it about a thousand times and then leaves the work to us. Salvation is um, not just someone pulling us out of a burning house as much as it's someone taking a bullet in front of us and dying instead of us. Our metaphors need to be parsed. Not all metaphors are created equal. The first one I just said is good, but not great. The second one is great. Because Jesus isn't a rescuer at low cost. Jesus is not a rescuer at low cost. He's a substitute, a brunt taker, a curse absorber, and one who, it's almost like he became evil on the cross even though he was the complete antithesis and perfect. He became Ananias. He became like us, worse, us. This is how we should think. And it makes us yearn for his salvation even more and stand in awe and shock at the notion that we're taking breaths right now. It's because Jesus died. It's because God's patient, and his patience is expressed in that. And that, all of this, is actually, in a strange way, the ultimate point of this passage. Like Irenaeus in the second century said, if anyone reads the scripture carefully, they will find some word, some hidden treasure in the field, which is Christ. And I'll just add to this by saying, and they will see it in unsuspecting places like the death of wicked Ananias. But if you look carefully, you'll see him everywhere. So as we wrap this up and ask, what does this mean? That's actually the question we've been building off of. So what's the ultimate takeaway? One, yes, look for ways like Barnabas to image the gospel with your generosity. 
If you're a Christian, you need, and I, we need to be doing this. And it's not, it's not like, a, again, a law. All this was elective for Christians. It was just a grace, a freedom to do it. But here's an encouragement. Lose something so others in your church might gain by your losing. And you tell an amazing story when you do that. Because that's your story. So why not tell it again in a lesser way, albeit, but still a very intentional way. Lose something, uh, a financial loss, a strength loss, a time loss, a always oh, going to do that today, but for the sake of this person, I won't do it, um, a comfort loss. Lose something, like God lost something for you, his one and only son. Lose something so others might gain by that losing. And do it for people in your church. Um, don't think that by giving some money to uh, an orphan or someone in, uh, through compassion in Africa is doing this, that idea. It's not. It's good. Don't stop doing it. But you're not fulfilling this idea by doing it for someone across the globe. You need to do it for people in your church. Otherwise, you're not following this pattern. It's harder, but it's better, and it tells a better story because there's more sacrifice. Elitha and I don't think a second about an auto-withdrawal out of our savings account or whatever to, to uh, go to a compassion kid. That's great. I'm, not, I'm all for compassion. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying here. That's not... If, if, this, is what, this is what we think sometimes, though, is, oh, I'm doing that. I'm giving money to a compassion child. Great. What about your church? All this stuff we're seeing is people that they intimately knew and were friends with. Or maybe they weren't friends. Maybe they were enemies, but they still loved each other in Christ because they were both Christians and they believed the tomb was empty. So do this for people in your church or you're not really doing it at all. All right, so yes, look for ways to embody the gospel with generosity to another Hiawathite. If this is your home church. If it's not, do it... Uh, with your home church. But then go past that to seeing God's generosity to you and then strive to live by his grace, not by your works. And I'll add on to that last phrase. Watch your life. Don't make much of yourself. Boast in your works. Or don't boast in your works. This is partly actually why these two people died. They, it's not because they hid money, because, because they hid behind their good works. And in that, they were denying Jesus. Liars don't go to hell. People who deny Jesus go to hell. Because a lot of liars go to heaven or the new earth, whatever. So they're saved. So again, it's not about lying or not lying, but we shouldn't lie. It's just what's behind that. It's this desire to look better than we are, which is religion. It's, it's, a, it's a slap in the face of God saying, I don't need you. And that is the problem. That's the problem. The problem's here in the heart. It's not out there. Last word here, borrowing from the two contrasting parts, really, of this passage. I think it's cool how, how Luke writes. There's two greats in this passage, and also I'll just read this. Stand in great fear of your sin and what you deserve, but stand in great awe of the great grace of Christ for losing so that you can gain. And then be generous freely with other believers in light of it. Hold your stuff looser because God was not stingy with you. And he was certainly not stingy when he gave what belonged to him, his field, his land, more than that though, his one and only son who was given for us that we might actually be saved. Isn't that amazing? This is who our God is. He gave his one and only son so that we might live. His one and only son fell dead like Ananias and breathed his last and fell down. And we're standing here. I mean, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. This is the grace we have if we just believe the gospel and believe that Jesus died for us. 
And like that last song said, the crowns we're clenching, if we cast our crowns and trophies and resumes and all of our good works before the foot of the cross and say none of that matters except him and what he's doing there, his, his shed blood, that, that's what makes a person a Christian. Really bad people who say that are Christians. Really good people who can't say that because they love their crowns too much are not. It's not about good and bad. It's about being in Christ or not. So believe in him. If you haven't yet, believe in him and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for this passage. Thank you for the, this multi-angled view on really what's our story. So many things, I won't even try to recap, but thanks for the gospel in it. Thank you that Jesus is there, hidden among the field, that we can kind of dig for and look for like a gem or treasure, and, and, cert- and certainly he's there. Thank you for dying for us, for falling dead, for being wrapped up and buried. Thank you for saving us, not just from lies, but from attempts at self-glorification, which is at the core of what we've all done. Thank you for dying for it, but also for wooing us away from that through the cross and leading, giving, bringing us to this picture of a God who didn't sacrifice his one son, but gave him up to die in that way for us. Like, if we really take that in, it's really hard to think highly of ourselves, and yet we also think, man, I must be really loved if God would do that. And so I pray for that tension to fill our church and, and our lives and that you would save us and keep us from false doctrine and um, help us to really worship you and thank you for who you are. I pray for that, this last couple songs here. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond.